Hey, all right, everyone. Welcome to the newest episode of Heal Thyself. Thank you for listening. Thank you for following. Thank you for rating. Thank you for reviewing. Thank you for subscribing. This is a really fun show that I've been doing. Um, it's brought a lot of uh, real gratitude coming out that I'm able to uh, talk and people want to listen, which is uh, a really good feeling. But it's also uh, partly... I feel like I'm fulfilling a duty in this life. Um, and that's also wonderful because, again, I say it every week, it's to empower everyone to really make some informed decisions, let them know what's out there, both scientifically, um, what we see clinically, what we hear. So we could put that information in front of you and you all make informed decisions. That's been the goal since day one. That's what I've been saying. So hopefully you've been sticking to it. Today, we have a full show. This knowledge bomb is going to be pretty long, but it's going to be good long. It's going to be long because it's information we want to know. It's information we need to know. How do we better ourselves? The whole point, another theme of the show is how do we better ourselves physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally? How do we creatively, how do we get better? How do we shed those parts of us that aren't serving all these versions of us? And how do we get better? So we have a guest coming on later who's going to really, really drop some knowledge, put it on us, and let us know what information he's going to be able to give us that we can take these tidbits, take these little appetizers and gems and put them into our lives to better ourselves. All right, so with further ado, without further ado, let's get down to the knowledge bomb. All right, today's knowledge bomb is going to go into a really important topic. What about our brain? Well, our brain is such an important organ. You know, we learned this in eighth grade biology, seventh grade biology, sixth grade biology. Our brain is such an important organ, but it is vulnerable to so many things in this world. Infections, fat-soluble toxins, inflammation. Consistently, our brain can be a target for many things that are bringing down its overall health. So... I want to tell everyone and talk to everyone about what we can do to ensure our best brain health. And there's so many things starting today that we can start implementing. But I want to talk about a little version about something that we can manipulate to better our brain health, right? There's a protein which has been found to be so intimately tied to our brain health. And there's interventions out there which we can do that'll stimulate this protein to better our brain health. Now, I don't care what age you are, everyone can use better brain health. But as you get older, we know that our brain's been consistently insulted by all of these things, so we should become more aware about how we can protect it. So without further ado, let's talk about it. Brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, such an important topic. You may have heard of it. I know my friend Olivia had put up a post the other day about it. Um, but it's so important to talk about. One of the leading neurologists in the country, David Perlmutter, alternative neurologist, ones who talk about the importance of food with our brain health, David Perlmutter describes this as basically the growth hormone for the brain. And it's so important because this protein is actually just not solitary, moving around and affecting the body. It comes with a, a whole group, right? A whole, a whole family of proteins called neurotrophins. These neurotrophins, the most important one is this BDNF. BDNF, what does it do? Well, it helps with 
survival of brain cells, the neurons, survival, development and differentiation, uh, function of these neurons. It's basically the protein for brain vitality. Also helps with something, as I mentioned, called neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. Two important, and you'll hear me talk about it, neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. Neurogenesis is the growth of these new brain cells, right? The growth of new neurons. And then neuroplasticity is how do these neurons connect and communicate with each other? They form networks. Years ago, old antiquated way of thinking, we thought, you know, infancy, childhood, we got it. There's the brain. Ain't going to change that much. Fact of the matter is, is that we know that there's neuroplasticity. Different things, influences, factors throughout life affect the way the brain moves. It's like plastic. It's like malleable plastic. And these new connections form the more that it's exposed to something or the more it's exposed to something negative or positive. So why not give these, our brain better exposures to have better uh, overall health? I want to talk about something. BDNF, why is it important? because it is tied to long-term uh, neurodegenerative diseases like dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, what they see that it's reduced, it's, it's shown to be reduced in those who have dementia and those with a predisposition to dementia. And uh, also sex, age, and smoking status is also associated with low BDNF levels. Of course, we know what smoking does in so many levels. This is not a surprise that it affects brain proteins, but um, we see also that it can, it, it's important because it can become a predictive biomarker, meaning that, hey, if BDNF is really low to these people who are predisposed with a family history of neurodegenerative diseases, well, maybe we need to take extra precautions to implement these things so BDNF is elevated throughout life. Um, it's, and also people who are diagnosed with neurodegenerative disease, BDNF could be uh, a, a novel pre-prognotic uh, marker for to see how they're going to be long-term, these patients. So um, the Journal of, Ameri Journal of American Medical Association, uh, there was a Boston University study that found basically baseline BDNF levels in a group of uh, adults. They took those baseline levels and followed them up to 10 years. And basically what they found is, is that the individuals with the highest baseline BDNF levels developed dementia 50% less than those compared with the lowest levels. That's crazy, 50%, meaning that if you are able to maximize BDNF levels in your life, essentially you're 50% less likely to develop neurodegenerative disease. Take that with a family history, this is even more reason for us to really be paying attention to what we can do for our brain health. BDNF is also linked to depression, OCD, schizophrenia, so it's all the array of cognitive issues that we can see in both adults, children, and everything else in between um, that we need to be paying close attention to. So let me start dropping what the best interventions are, right? Number one, number one, number one, movement physical activity is going to raise BDNF. So important. Everyone listening to this show with whatever they can do needs to be moving or exercising. We have evolutionarily been doing this for so long. Our bodies are made to move. Only recently have we come into this place where we're sitting, solitary, sedentary, not moving, and we're suffering many of these effects, right? So 
Dr. G, why physical exercise? Why physical activity? What the heck does it do? Well, most of us in the U.S. aren't even coming close to moderate to rigorous, rigorous exercise in the week. And it's, it's actually recommended about 150 minutes per week. It's longer than even sometimes I do in the week. Um, we don't know exactly how BDNF is uh, stimulated by exercise, but it's believed to be partly due to increase uh, in blood going to the brain, the opening of the blood-brain blood brain barrier, uh, blood going to the brain, increasing brain tissue. Um, there was a recent study in the Journal of Neurology that showed that those with who had uh, genetically dominant markers for Alzheimer's, that these biomarkers for Alzheimer's were reduced in those who had a high amount of physical activity versus low. And another uh, recent study suggested that even moderate exercise can be beneficial in reducing the predisposition to Alzheimer's or those with Alzheimer's to be working out and it will reduce the pathology of the Alzheimer's process. That's great, but I wanna know if I'm not predisposed to Alzheimer's and I don't have Alzheimer's, what is exercise gonna do in the context of BDNF? So BDNF is released by the brain at two to three fold when we exercise versus when we're just sitting still doing nothing. So already, we don't have to be predisposed to Alzheimer's. We don't have to have Alzheimer's. We can just start benefiting by exercise when it comes to BDNF. So in healthy human, it appears that there's a linear relationship be, uh, between exercise intensity and uh, the effects of BDNF levels or the, the uh, creation of BDNF. So what they found is what type of exercise? Usually higher intensity exercise will give us more development of BDNF when they measure it versus uh, moderate amounts that are continuous. So short, high burst versus moderate amounts. Uh, although still continuous moderate amounts produced a good amount of BDNF, um, the people who were doing HIIT workouts uh, produced a little bit more. So regardless, that doesn't mean do HIIT workouts five times a week. It means to start moving. It means to, if one day a week you're doing continuous exercise, moderate or two days a week, and you're doing HIIT workouts another day a week, that just understand that this aerobic uh, slash anaerobic exercise is going to be helping create this uh, protein, which is gonna be giving love to your brain. So take home, everyone needs to be exercising, everyone needs to be moving. What, what else? What about stress? Stress is a major, major atomic bomb when it comes to the development of brain health. So stress will affect brain cognition, attention, memory, and additionally, we'll actually start ramping up the centers of our brain that modulate mood and anxiety. So what we see in the evidence is that animals with prolonged stress reduces the activity in the part of their brain called the prefrontal cortex. And this is where you have higher order tasks and it activates the amygdala. The amygdala is a part of the brain that puts them in survival mode. So the more stress that these animals were under, they were more in survival mode and forgetting their higher order tasks. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, we also believe that the basically, like I said, the brain structuring happens when you're young and, and it stays, but we have neuroplasticity. Now that means we can rewire. The minute we take out or handle that stress better, our brain begins to rewire. And we know that ex, uh, mindfulness meditation, yoga, uh, sh other stress handling techniques can help rewire that brain. Um, I read a study a while ago that meditation actually starts increasing those centers of your brain that are 
more at peace and overall sense of well-being and starts reducing, as the, I mentioned, those anxious centers or those mood, those really uh, impaired mood centers. Um, so chronic or acute stress and cortisol, as I mentioned, decreases BDNF. We see that in different animal studies. Um, acute stress basically was more significant in the brain changes when you have a really high amount of acute stress, say, uh, you just had a family member suddenly die, that has a real toll on your brain. So you have to make sure that you're paying close attention to certain things that you can do in those times. Um, but also people who are under constant stress, they're also affecting, affected by it. So uh, exercise, as I mentioned, mindfulness, uh, meditation, and adding yoga. All right, so we have down, exercise, stress. What else we can do for our brain? What else can help stimulate this beautiful protein, BDNF? Well, food. Who would I be not to say anything about food? That's all I talk about, right? So the standard American diet was pretty much the worst diet when it comes to showing how it affects BDNF. It is like a buzzsaw in the, in the production of high levels of BDNF. What they saw was in the context of high fat and high amounts of refined sugar, it just, it just reduced BDNF. In two months, these animal studies, in the animal study of the standard American diet, uh, BDNF was reduced greatly. Um, and what they found was the, that the neuroplasticity was reduced, meaning how the, how the brain cells communicate with each other, proportional to the drop in BDNF in these animals. So remember, high amounts of fat, processed, crappy fat, and then high amounts of sugar, processed sugar, is going to be like a forest fire in your brain, okay? And remember, it's the added sugar. Don't be afraid to eat an apple. Don't be afraid to eat an orange. Don't even be afraid to have some watermelon. I'm talking about added sugar, that stuff that comes in the processed crap that you eat that masks uh, how unhealthy it is by making it taste sweet. What other foods can we eat? High flavonoid foods. Flavonoids are a big class of uh, plant compounds. They're metabolites and they're phytonutrients. They're found in plants. This is why I talk about plant. It, it's one of the many phytonutrients that have an effect, and we don't even know all of them, how they affect. They could all affect our brain, but we know phytonutrients really do. There are many different subgroups. We hear of EGCG. Well, that's in green tea, genistein and soy, anthocyanidins and darker and heart-healthy fruits and vegetables. So red and blue and purple ones are really the big ones when it comes to um, brain foods. So think about the darker and the riper. I'm talking about like blackberries, blueberries, grapes. If I'm guilty of anything, it's eating a ton of blackberries and blueberries. Um, I eat about a package a day um, because I like the flavor. Great, but you know what? I'm also giving love to my brain. They had a randomized controlled dietary intervention trial that was conducted on animal models and they investigated how do these flavonoid rich foods help? And, that's what, and they had um, uh, green tea, grapes, uh, cocoa, blueberry, and, and they, they basically wanted to see how these diets affect memory and learning. So with regards to how BDNF levels were changed, they found that, that these flavonoid-rich foods had a significant impact, fruits and vegetables had a significant impact on serum BDNF, and it only took 18 weeks. So literally, if you're eating like crap, take four months, really good, clean up your diet, and know that you can completely change the climate of your body so fast. That's so cool. Another really high rich one was uh, cocoa powder. And what they found with that study in the trial was that it led to higher serum BDNF levels, better cognitive performance. Uh, and that was over 12 weeks, so even less, um, relative to the people who were eating low flavonoid foods. Um, so it's assumed to be going through different pathways. We don't know all of them, but um, yeah, basically BDNF, flavonoid rich foods, start eating your 
uh, flavonoid-rich foods, and you know you can literally Google that and see all the foods which have high flavonoids. I mentioned a few. Um, also, keep in mind that those high antioxidant foods are also going to help your brain health, like rosemary, uh, curcumin, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, and different other spices. Uh, just keep in mind, brain food, our brain loves to have high antioxidant food. Our brain loves to have food with high flavonoids. So let's just keep that in mind that to, to start bulking them up, especially, especially if you have a family history of brain disease. If you have a family history of brain disease, this is a non-negotiable. You need to be having flavonoid-rich foods daily without fail. Oh boy, I wanted to talk about this one. The gut-brain access, right? Well, well, you know, it's it's a hot topic. We might as well talk about it. So how does our gut health affect our brain health? I personally can say when my gut is like crap, I'm not thinking correctly either. I noticed it. I did a little journaling of it and followed it and tracked it, and it's true. So it's not clear yet how the gut microbiome affects the brain. We don't know fully, but we do believe it has to do with the, the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, and different metabolites are traveling through uh, through the system into the, into the brain. So let's talk about a nutrient that is produced in the gut that really helps the growth of BDNF and brain health overall. Butyrate. Butyrate, butyrate, butyrate. Why does Dr. Gonzalez, me, talk so much about fiber? Well, because I know what fiber does in the gut. To me, it's one of the most important nutrients. It's probably the most important one. I push fiber. I push it. I push it hard. And I say, listen, if you're not getting enough fiber like our ancestors did, you're not giving your body the love that it needs. So what happens with fiber? Basically, you have these, uh, the, you're basically eating non-digestible fiber, and the bacteria in the colon is taking this non-digestible fiber, and it's synthesizing something called butyrate through fermentation, butyrate. It uses this butyrate for energy, but guess what loves this butyrate also? Our brain. It's like saying, hey, man, thanks for feeding me. I'm going to give you a little something-something gives us a little butyrate, throws it to our brain. Our brain goes, hey, man, thank you. It's like a symbiotic love fest going on in your body. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it makes our brain vital. Um, and, and in that mutually beneficial relationship, it's taking this butyrate and utilizing it for different processes in the brain. Okay, so uh, where do we find butyrate? Well, in starch. Resistant starches is a big one, and that's high in like oats, rice, brands, potatoes, yams, legumes, green bananas, um, and then foods high in cellulose, more fiber, cruciferous veggies, leafy greens, nuts and seeds, uh, sprouts, squash, whole grains. Really important to be having these foods as part of a staple in your diet, because if you're eating food that is devoid of all of these really high fiber, uh, high, high fiber constituents, then you're not giving your gut the love that it needs. And in response, it's not giving you much love either. It's like living with a partner that you're going to divorce very soon. Uh, so there's mounting data that shows animals, again, in the blood-brain barrier, that's what it's passing. Uh, there's attenuation of neuroinflammation, really important because so many things can affect our brain as far as inflammation. We want to make sure that we're getting the nutrients from our body to sort of put the... Um, fire extinguisher on the fire uh, that's going on in our brain, has positive effects on cognition. So it protects the brain and it increases more plasticity. So there's better communication of all those brain cells. Really awesome. All right. One of the last ones, but not the last. So second to last. Uh, fasting. 
Yeah, like this is a hot topic. Everyone asks me about fasting. Everyone's engaged when I talk about fasting. So why not talk about it? Well, what does it do for our brain, right? So David Perlmutter, he's the author of Grain Brain. He really recommends fasting, uh, doing a 24-hour to 48-hour fast about four times a year. And then during the week, doing it intermittently. So some people do one 24-hour day uh, fast per, per week, and I think that's really cool. Um, I'm, I'm more rather do it maybe once a month, if anything. So, uh, but what we find is that fasting has protective effects on the brain and brain health, which is really cool too. So what happens is intermittent fasting, we have, uh, we have basically sugars uh, stored up as glycogen in our liver. And then uh, over 10 to 14 hours of not getting food starts breaking down. Right? And then it produces something called ketones, which is the whole push for the ketogenic diet, which is, is based on a really good idea. Long-term is not sustainable. I don't think that anyone should do it long-term, but regardless, um, it produces the, these ketones and those are the protective nutrients for our brain. These ketones stimulate BDNF growth, right? So this is how fasting helps stimulate brain health. Really cool stuff. So there was one study that was done on mice um, and uh, they were doing uh, a fast of one day eat, f feeding, one day not feeding, one day feeding, one day not feeding, and it increased BDNF by 50%. So cool. It also activates other pathways in the body like detoxification, inflammation, uh, increases mitochondrial growth. So yeah, I mean like fasting is really incredible. It, it, I am a fan of at least intermittent fast, fasting. I've done the um, fasting mimicking diet for a little bit, for a little bit by meaning five days. That was a lot of it, it was a long time, but um, when you're not eating. But I really do recommend if we're good adrenally, if, if we don't have problems with blood sugar, that we should start exploring the possibility of fasting at least intermittently. Take 13 to 16 hours and, and see, because we know come the 14 hour mark, that's when we start producing those ketones. Um, and that's a good practice to do, just not long-term. And the last thing I wanna mention, uh, there's probably, we're starting to see more and more, the effect of sunlight on our brain uh, and the growth of uh, BDNF when it comes to sunlight. So there was a study of 3,000 people in the Netherlands and they did, uh, they were continuously measuring their BDNF levels and what they saw was seasonally it was going up and down and up and down. So, so when these folks were uh, exposed to more sunlight, BDNF went up. So that's really cool to understand. I mean, does it make sense? Like, doesn't it make sense? We've been uh, evolving with the sun. We've been in the sun way more than we usually are. And you would think that we have just like the relationship with our gut bacteria, a really close symbiotic relationship with the sun. Maybe the sun derives stuff from us that we don't even know about. Uh, anyway, taking vitamin D does not increase BDNF because it works on different receptors. The sun is much more complex, have different, more, way more complex mechanisms, but it's so cool to know that we can step outside and access something that is cheaper than any supplement out there to help our brain. So that's something I really wanted to put out there for everyone. Don't tell me you can't use better brain health. I don't know one person in this world who can't have better brain health, uh, particularly me, particularly if you're in a job that's demanding or it's just that we're using it all the time. So, so important, take these, uh, take these recommendations and start implementing them in your life. I mean, who can't find time to exercise? Uh, who can't find time to go outside in the sun? 
right? Who can't t find time to fast? Who can't find time to eat healthier food? Well, now you know what all these things are doing for you, particularly your brain. So how powerful is that? With that said, why don't we move on to our special guest? I'm really excited to have him on. I think he's gonna drop a lot of good information for everyone, so let's get on. All right, everyone, today's special guest segment. Actually, I'm lucky enough to have a good friend of mine come in, and we always talk business. We always talk about high vibration stuff. He's going to be such a good guest, and here's why, because we're on the same vibe. This guy's amazing. His name's Dustin Watton. He plays professional volleyball, plays for the USA team, is plant-based, is a mindfulness guru, is a taskmaster. This guy is going to better our lives just by putting a little bit of his brain on the table. Please, everyone, welcome Dustin Watton. Thank you. Was that quite, an intro or quite, what? Quite, quite the intro. <laughs> I would say. Yeah, right. I mean, I, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. Yeah. But uh, it's a fun journey, I think, with um, especially with volleyball. I got to a pretty late start. I mean, this is what I'm most well known for as a volleyball player now. I my ninth year professionally overseas. I play with Team USA. Um, lots of medals. World Cup champions 2015. All right. But uh, yeah, I got into it late. I was really bad. And uh, the first tournament I played in my club, I mean, we got dead last in the nation. And so I was actually really lucky I was so bad when I started because I knew I could only go up. And yeah. uh, luckily, I just had parents that always told me they were proud of me. And so no matter what the setback was, I had like this, this unconditional love and support. And so from there, I. I had that support, I had that love, and I, but I still was, <laughs> I still was conscious that I wasn't that good, and so from there, it was just like, how can I get better? Yeah. And so it's been a, a fun journey from playing beach volleyball with my dad and losing a bunch of old guys, eventually going to college, and then all the way up to professional, it's just like finding ways to, to be a little bit better, especially outside the court, because going in the professional, you know, uh, now I'm 24, Everyone in Europe has been playing since they're 18 pro. And so it's like, how can I catch up to these guys? And so mindfulness, meditation, stretching, eating, getting into a plant-based diet, it's been a crazy journey, but it's propelled me into this, uh, this fever of just learning about myself, my environment, and how I can consistently shed a lesser version of myself while hopefully empowering those around me and maybe those I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, Dustin, that's why I think that's why we really connected is because that's the vibe that I'm always preaching to people to shed that lesser version of themselves, what doesn't serve them. And yeah, like it doesn't surprise me that we connected probably more than a year ago already because like vibes connect with like yeah. vibes, right? And something really interesting you told me is that when you started your career, you didn't have any of these practices in your life, yeah. right? And you were sort of doing all these things that you knew weren't serving you or your spiritual growth or your athletic professional growth. Mm -hmm. So then wh at what point did that lesser version of yourself start shedding? What was, was there a realization? What happened? We've talked about this kind of growing up. Like I watched, I was kind of consumed programmed by like MTV. I always talk about like Van Wilder or, you know, when I was high school, I was watching this and didn't have a lot of friends in high school. But I was like, oh, I want to be that cool party guy. How do I do this? I drink, I take girls, you know, yeah. whatever it may be. But I was like, this was kind of what I was programmed to believe I should be, to be cool and to be validated, to be loved. 
And I think a lot of that came from not having a lot of friends in high school. And so that's the path I went. And I went hard in college. You know, mm. I wanted to be the coolest guy, the guy that went all the drinking games, the guy that could drink the most. And then uh, eventually with the USA team, I, I started realizing that these two things couldn't exist. I couldn't be the best athlete and the best drinker, the best partier. And uh, it wasn't until maybe my fourth year playing professional, I came across a book, um, Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. And paraphrasing, he kind of asks the reader a hypothetical question. And it's like, Friday, Saturday night, if you're escaping with these vices, drugs, alcohol, um, lust, it's like, well, what are you really escaping? And why, why are you escaping this Monday through Friday that you've created? And then asking another hypoth hypothetical question, it's, um, you know, why not just create a better high through that Monday and Thursday so you don't have to escape and reach for this uh, salvation Friday, Saturday night. And it made so much sense to me because I'd go hard, I'd party, and the next day I'd feel like crap, you know, and then next maybe Monday, Tuesday practicing, I don't feel very good. And I just was not aligned with my goals of being the best volleyball player I could be, being the best person I can be, being the healthiest person I can be. And so when I saw this, it kind of clicked for me. And then I was like, well, what other books did this guy write? And then from there, listening to different podcasts, but I slowly started to put down the booze. Uh, when I go out, and it was like one or two drinks. And then the following summer was 2016. And um, usually when I go out to drink and people are like, hey, come have a drink. I'm like, no, I don't want to. Because uh, I had this realization, they kind of peer pressure me and I feel uncomfortable. Because again, it goes back to like this, feeling of wanting to feel loved, to be accepted, and okay, I'll have a, a drink or two, but in the back of my mind, this is, wasn't aligned with my highest self. But in 2016, I was kind of an outlier for the Olympics, and it would have taken a huge push, and so I went all the way in. I pretty much stopped my relationship with my girlfriend. Uh, I moved back with my parents. I cut out all drinking, like everything I could to give myself the best shot. And it was so funny, because now when I went out and drink, everyone would be like, come drink with me. And I'm like, no, I'm not drinking for the Olympics. Everyone's like, oh, smart, smart. <laughs> Different. But I had this realization there too, like it was kind of uncomfortable being in bars and social situations, but I became more comfortable with it, more confident in myself. And then I also see how people morph throughout the night. And it was such a surprise because I see these guys that were great friends and I see them almost turn into like animals. And just thinking about it, I was like, that's me as well. And it's just like, it's just such a great eye opener from the first time I read that book until these nights where I go sober and it's just like, this is not aligned with the person who I want to be. Right, right. And, and so you aligned yourself by removing all of those things, which I guess didn't serve you or identify with who your version of you was. Yeah. I think it's pretty incredible when we can have that realization. I mean, that book is like an all timer anyway. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the very first ones that like sort of was a catalyst to just opening my eyes for everything around me. Um, really important thing is that, that he reiterates and that you just reiterated is that you can take this version of yourself and step back and look at this awareness and go, with awareness and go, is this serving me? And you did so, and that was sort of the first steps that you took to be where you are now. But the problem is a lot of people don't even have the awareness to look at themselves and go, is this serving me? Is there a certain practice that you do to ask yourself if something's serving you over and over? 
or write it out? Or how do you keep tabs on where you are? My second year overseas, uh, like I really started from the bottom. My first year out of college, I didn't get a contract. My second year, I got a contract in Finland, which is like the lowest league. I'm making maybe 10,000 euros a season. Yeah. And then I had a great year. I didn't go anywhere. I had to go back to my team, kind of my tail in between my legs. And then in the middle of that year, I wasn't playing that well. And I had kind of my same vices with, with drinking, computer games, stuff like this. And it's just like, something has to change. Like, and every night I go to bed, and I just kind of think like, I just did nothing today. I just played video games. Like, and I was doing pretty well because in Finland, like if you're not like an alcoholic, you know, or going crazy, you're doing you're pretty there, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially coming from Southern California. Yeah. Um, but I just think to myself, like something has to change. The next day I wake up, I don't change anything. And then eventually it's just like, you know, my, my career is going to end. Like I have to change it. And so uh, I was reading, uh, at the time I was reading a lot of mindset books and I came across this idea of building a list. And so at first it was just very simple. It's just four things. It was like lift every day, do core, read 10 pages and stretch at night. Just super simple. But it was like, all right, these are my tasks. And like, I know if I accomplish these throughout the day, I'm going to be as prepared as I can be and confident when I come into that game. And so at first it really didn't work well because sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. And, you know, if I did it, I highlight it. If not, I circle it. And by the end of the week, you know, if I had a bunch that weren't highlighted, I look back and I'd be like, am I really sticking towards my values of being the best volleyball player I can be of as a guy who really wants to work hard to get my new contract, and it was it was an answer, it was a no, and so I go into those games not as confident, not as prepared. But when I did highlight them, and the whole week was full of highlighter marks, I played great, and so I kind of had something there. And next year, uh, came across a book, uh, Rituals Finding Ultra, that kind of spurred me to go plant-based diet. So that led to more kind of self-discovery, meditation, and then. Since then, I've expanded the list to almost 25 items. Wow. And are you able to highlight most of the days these items? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm a big believer. It's We have so much time in the day. And so I've had, um, I've developed a couple ways to be more productive. And so with a lot of things on my list, it's, you know, it's a choice I have to make or I don't make because it's so easy just to, especially overseas, to escape. Okay, maybe I want to scroll on Instagram. Maybe I want to watch Netflix. I'm, my body's tired. Mm-hmm. and go off my friends. It's like, all right. But like at the same time, it's like, am I living up to my values? Like, this is what I said are my priorities. This is kind of my goal or maybe not so much my goal, but I have like kind of like a compass of like being an Olympian. And it's like, all right, am I working my way with that compass leading me? And so one of the things I've used that has really helped me and... Um, I know my followers, my audience have taken a lot of benefit from this too, is the Pomodoro technique. And what this is, is um, it was developed by an Italian, Pomodoro. I think I said pronounce it correctly. Mm-hmm. It's like a tomato and like those old school tomato timers. So what I do is uh, I find a task. So say reading. And I set a time, say 20 minutes. And then from there, I turn off my phone, turn off my computer, no distractions at all. Because... What usually what happens, especially when I'm overseas, I'll read, and after a while, my mind kind of goes wild, like, oh, what's on Instagram? 
oh, what's on Twitter? I go on Instagram. Oh, a DM from this person. I Open write it. it up, I go to the page. It, oh, who's that? Yeah. Oh, a cute girl or whatever it may be. And then it's like 40 minutes later, it's like, I'm not oh, reading at all. Yeah, you know, yeah, I just I lose. And so it's a great way to hold yourself accountable with no distractions, no vices. You're just locked in in that task. And so if I want to and I follow this technique, I just crush my list. I can do it before 2 p.m. Like it's easy because I'm just right? rolling. And it's just uh, task after another. And usually after you do it, so you have a, you set the task, you set the, uh, the timer, you do said task. And after that, you usually give yourself five or 10 minutes, do whatever you want, go on Instagram, whatever, but you have a timer. So 10 minutes rolls around, it's like, okay, snap back into reality and I get back to work. But usually what happens when I do this, I go from task to task because I'm just like in a flow state. Yeah. And it's so amazing without these distractions or alerts, you're just go into it. Yeah, I find the biggest, well, two things. One thing that stuck out is that we have more time in a day because in my brain, I don't have enough time in the day. Yeah. And, but, but it's true what you say we do when we're able to understand how much time we're allocating to different things, right? Um, and you know that I do a lot of work on Instagram anyway. So mm-hmm. uh, by the time I know it, I've answered 15, 20, 30 DMs. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that was 30 minutes. Uh-huh. It, it, but this technique is something you introduced me to a while ago. Um, I so agree on this flow state because it's a it's sort of a shortcut to get to a flow state. Because when you are in your flow state, you know, it may take an hour to get to it without the technique, but you're in it, you know. The thing is there's easy distractions coming on. When you have set rigid um, uh, rules, basically, to follow, then that's easier. Do you find that you said the whole morning you can be done with all your tasks? Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it's almost like kind of being like in a sensory deprivation tank. Yeah. It's like you're in there and it's like, I have nothing to do but like contemplate my thoughts, yeah. you know? So you have your phones off, your computer off, which is easy for me, like living in Poland. But when I have that off, it's like, all right, this is what I have to do. And I have a timer. Once that timer goes off, then I'm done. Same thing like if you're like floating, it's like, all right, eventually the music's going to come on. But until then, like, I just have to be with my thoughts. Yeah. And so, but you just have to hold yourself accountable and sit down, hit that timer, put it to the side, and then do that task. But it's so easy. I mean, now you have Instagram with like the iPhone timer. But the thing with me, if I'm not like being responsible, holding myself accountable, that timer will pop yeah, up and be like, all right, you're done. Phone. And you're like, uh, keep on going. I'm yeah. like, keep on going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, maybe it's maybe um, investing in an old school timer, the ones that just, you know, that might even be better. So the technique is basically, is there 20 minute, how's it go again? So I usually do. So say, for example, I want to read. So I'm going to grab a book. I'm going to set my timer. Um, I like to do it for either 30 or 45 minutes. I'll put my phone on airplane mode, turn my computer off, and I'll just find a place, usually somewhere where it's not associated with a bad habit, like being on my computer or looking at my phone. Go to that place, and from there you kind of create like a new habit, like this is where I read. And so I just hit the timer, I put it to the side, and I just read. Again, kind of like sensory deprivation or meditation. It's just like, well, like I'm done when the timer's done. And then from there, you decide if you want to give yourself advice or something on Instagram, maybe get a snack, but make sure you set another timer. So once that hits again, you're responsible for the next set task. Yeah, and that and that could be the issue, right? Because in between tasks, you're like, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to look at Instagram or I'm going to go on Facebook for yeah. 20 minutes and then it's over. Yeah, you know exactly. And we're all guilty of it. Yeah, I mean, me too. I can talk about it, but I'm guilty of it as well. But at the same time, if you're if your priority is being a better version, getting a business started, being the best athlete, working outside, taking care of your body, like it's up to you. Like it's my favorite Stoic quote: 
it's up to you. At the end of the day, it's your choice. You control your choice. You control your ability to set goals, and you control your actions. So for me, I just it's difficult to hear people say that they don't have enough time because we all do. You know, We can skip Dancing the Stars. We yeah. can put Instagram on lock for a day, for a week. Mm-hmm. You know, We don't have to go out to that movie. Like if we really want to grow, like we can set time aside. And yeah. this is a trick that, I wouldn't say trick. This is a way to be aligned with those values. Yeah, I find the, the best version of myself that shows up is when I don't touch my phone every morning for about an hour. Mm-hmm. And I turn it off on airplane mode about an hour before I go to bed. And in that hour, I do different rituals for myself and self-growth, mm-hmm. uh, intellectual, spiritual, whatever it is, creative. So it, it really is such a powerful distraction, right? Or device at the same time, the phone, right? Mm-hmm. We connect with so many people, but it does have a drawing. So I think, I think that reestablishes the concept that maybe our phone could be our a wonderful friend, but an- another enemy at the same time too. So just being aware of how much time of your life is being spent on it. Yeah, and I think we have to be mindful of it too because even if you're on it from time to time, like those minutes add up where it's like you could have been reading a book solely and with that time you crush a book in a week. For me overseas it works really well because I'll have a morning practice and I have an afternoon practice and I don't touch social media until after my evening practice. And so like that vice is completely gone. And for whatever reason, when I'm here, I just have a morning practice, and so I'll go quick to Instagram. Yeah, yeah, you've been more active, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's the same way for me, too, because I believe with Instagram, we can really inspire, empower, and even learn from Instagram. I've learned a lot from you, and you want to give it out, but at the same time, you know, Instagram's algorithm, like, they're designed just from taking your time. That's the only thing that it's meant to do. Like, I know a designer, and it's just like, the algorithms are to keep you on there as long as possible. It's so true. And if you, you're not mindful of that algorithm, you're in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, and you and I both know, like, if, if we're not on it for four days, five days straight, we come back on, it's like a ghost town, mm-hmm. right? Because the algorithm is just, just throws you right off. Yeah. Um, so you're really well-read. You read so many books. Can you tell, like, let's just drop some knowledge. Tell, give, give us some good <laughs> stuff. Give, give us some of your favorite info from books you found, maybe some of the readers, I mean, some of the listeners or viewers, maybe books that they should be reading too. Yeah, so uh, uh, benefits, benefits of having a mom who's a first grade teacher, uh, kind of kept to, step to the game late in life. But um, this year I had, a, I had a really difficult time because um, I was on a, on a big team and then eventually in the year I got replaced. And so it was really a difficult time for me, but I came across a couple books that really helped me. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl. Uh, he talks about his experience in the Holocaust and why certain people were able to survive and why weren't. And so this kind of put my um, situation into perspective. You yeah. know, kind of like, pretty quick. Oh, this is so tough or this isn't fair. And it was like, at the end of the day, like, I have the power to choose. Yeah. You know, no one else has that power over me. I have the power to choose. Um, another book that I read maybe three times, I had it on audio. Uh, living in Berlin, a lot of traffic, so a lot of audiobooks is Eckhart Tolle's uh, New Earth and just talking about the ego. And again, I, I caught myself in all these kind of ego traps like this isn't fair, finding explanations, gossip, and pretty much all, all this storytelling, whether it was vocally or in my head, it's just constantly like a waste of time and energy. But it was just serving this like ultimate battle of like my ego of someone else being wrong and me being right. 
And so it was really good to, to read his words and to be mindful of the egos, this like devastating like war drum of always being right yeah. and catching myself. Um, and then one thing I think is pretty interesting is I'm talking to you about evolution of desire and just going back of um, why men are attracted to certain women, why women are attracted to certain men, biologically, why men lust so much, and being mindful of our attraction to uh, women. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find this is pretty interesting because overall I love the Stoic philosophy, and it talks a lot about um, foregoing like lust and pleasures, and the more pleasures you have, kind of the more, the more masters you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, um, my favorite book to recommend is a Stoic book called um, A Guide to the Good Life by William B. Irvine. And Stoicism is really hard, I think, for a lot of people to get into because a lot of the books are written by former Stoic authors who have been dead for thousands of years. <laughs> but uh, what do they know, right? But uh, this guy brings it, uh, talks about um, kind of the founders, the major players, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. Epictetus, and then some of the foundational techniques, negative visualization, and one of my favorite is the dichotomy of control, which talks about um, some things are up to us and some things aren't up to us. And so this has been really good for me too lately because uh, one of the big things I think everyone experiences, whether you're an athlete or not, is stress. Stress, frustration, Mm -hmm. disbelief, anger, and... I mean, you know better than me, like how this affects our health, our sleep, and it's just a circle of stress, mm-hmm. bad sleep, unhealthiness. And so personally right now, like I'm not with the team um, because in this uh, annual turn we have, we're hosting the finals. And so we're not really traveling the, the group that we usually do. We're moving young players in and out. And at first it was like really difficult and catching my ego. It's not fair. This isn't yeah. right. I should be traveling. Right. I want to be with the team. But in the dichotomy of control, it talks about, you know, some things are up to us and some things aren't up to us. And breaking it down, some things are within our power and some things aren't within our power. And so we always talk about like, okay, like only worry about things that are in your control. But here's the thing. There's things that are in our control, but not completely in our control. Mm-hmm. And so the author talks about a tennis match. Okay. So maybe if you go into the game wanting to win the game, this might actually hurt you because you go in a couple points into the game and now it looks like you're going to lose. Now you're getting stressed. Now you're going to get anxious. Now you're going to push a little bit more. You're going to start taking risk on serve and that's going to build up and build up. And as athletes, this happens a lot when you play against teams that you think you should win. Why aren't we winning? And so he talks about investing in things that you can completely control, which is playing the best game you can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or maybe going before that in yeah. the preparation, the nutrition, sleep, completely investing in everything you can control and also working, you know, you want to win the game, but at the same time we can't invest too much in this because we can't control uh, an inevitable outcome. And if we do worry about this, you know, it's going to disrupt our tranquility. So same thing for me. When the coach decides the roster, it's his perceptions. I can't control the perception of myself Mm -hmm. or what decision he makes, but I can control how hard I work, my commitment to the team, my commitment to my health. And so, Realizing this, this has really helped me and freed me, almost completely freed me of my stress. Because it's like, at the end of the day, no matter how much I think about it, it's not going to help uh, this decision. 
it's only going to make me stressed. Right. And each day, I'm going to be a little more stressed and a little more irritable, and I'm going to be a little more less likely to give love around me, which is my ultimate goal. Yeah. Be my best version and spread love. Beautiful goal, man. That's, isn't that what we're here for? Mm-hmm. Is to be that highest version of ourselves, which is really just love. Um, really, that's really interesting stuff because um, a lot of us want to control things that are seemingly out of our control. For example, you know, I buy a puppy, it runs across the street, it gets hit by a car. The only thing that we can control is how we react and how that situation affects Absolutely. Right. And and that doesn't go to say don't have a visceral reaction, but it does go to say that we can always have the power to control the way we respond to everything in our environment. Always. Um, As shitty as a circumstance may be. So that should even be empowering with that with that fact that we can even apply that top that off with being able to prepare and control what we can quote unquote control, right? With our even health-wise nutrition, uh, going to the gym, right? Good social connections and everything, being at peace, working on your stress. That's all stuff that we can control. Yeah, so Epictetus was the one that had this quote uh, and it's fitting because he was actually born a slave. And so worrying about things that you can and can't control, you know? But he talked about things that we can control is our desires, our versions, our ability to set goals. And my modern take on it is kind of like, maybe not our initial thought, but our second thought, our actions, our attitude, and our perceptions. Yeah. And so these things, it's under control. You know, what's not under control? If we get the job, if we get the promotion, you know, if the coach chooses us for the team, if Mm -hmm. we're a starter. And so we have to put everything we can and things that we can control that can kind of affect this situation but at the same time, we have to let go of our attachments to the situation, knowing that at the end of the day, it's not up to us. Yeah, and that just goes back to, now Now we talk about like Buddhist philosophy and it's attachment, right? Attachment to outcome and, and the way that we think things should unfold as being a source of so much pain and stress for us, right? Mm-hmm. But understanding, again, how do we show up to something that we quote unquote want or wanna create? How do we show up? And then how does everything unfold accordingly? right? Without looking at the outcome and being like, oh no, the outcome defines me. It's a big failure. I failed. But having a bigger perspective and being like, maybe this wasn't it. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something bigger. Um, And I always say that universe is responding to you, your vibration, you know, what it is. And it doesn't really care if it's quote unquote good, quote unquote bad. It's giving you what your vibration is. Absolutely. Right? So, (laughs) which is why I tell people to be masters of their thoughts and understand what are we saying? What are we then, what are we thinking? What are we saying? What are we doing? And if that's aligning with what we want to create, right? Mm -hmm. And alignment's something big that you always talk about, right? Like if you're saying it, if you're doing it, like make sure that it's aligned with who you want to be by having that awareness. Yeah. By speaking into existence, not so much with the head, but with the heart. Yeah. Because it's, you know, anywhere from like 40,000 times to a million times stronger if you speak it from the heart. Yeah. And then writing it too, I think starting the day with like gratefulness and abundance, I think we do the same thing where we make our bed and then we, we just say like, thank you, you know, yeah. like, thank you. Another like, day. Another day, exactly. Yeah. And I know there's a great Buddhist quote where it's like, you know, if we can't find anything to be grateful, at least we can give thanks for being able to make it up to this day. And yeah. so there's always a chance for us to find that abundance in life. But at the same time, it's like Stoics talk about, there's this, uh, this hedonic adaptation 
Whereas before, like Stoicism gave rise, there was like more of a hedonism uh, outlook towards life. So I'm just going to do whatever makes me feel great, yeah. you know, and I'm going to do as much as it possible. But what Stoics argue is, um, we'll give an example of like transportation. Say like you just want to get to work and you have to walk and it sucks. I really want a bike. I really want a bike. I really want a bike. You get that bike and for a while, like it's great. You're so happy. You get to ride your bike to work. But after a while, it becomes a new normal, mm-hmm. you know, and you're not really mindful of, of the abundance and gratefulness you have. And you yeah. see someone else, it's like, he has a car. Yeah, I want yeah. a car. I want a car. I want a car. You get a car. After a while, new normal. I want two cars. I want two yeah. cars. I want a nicer car. I want car. a nicer car. Yeah. So yeah. it's a hedonic adaptation. This is what you see with so many famous people going to deal with depression or even suicide. Yeah. It's because eventually it catches up to you and now you want something else. Yeah. And so there's different ways to deal with this. One it's really an odd concept, but negative visualization. And so this is the thought of thinking about something that you already have in life and imagine you losing it. Mm-hmm. And so they give an example, and it's kind of odd, but talks about putting your child to bed. Mm-hmm. And you put your child to bed and you imagine your life without them. Mm-hmm. Maybe they pass, there's sickness and whatever. You lose your child and you feel the sadness or whatever. And then you open up your eyes and you see your child and you have it. Different. Yeah, because yeah. if you just expect everything always to be perfect, for them to be healthy, for them to outlive you, and then if something does happen to you, you're going to be unconsolable in your grief and that someone had taken it from you. Mm-hmm. But if we have this recogni- recognition that everything is on rent to us, then we'll be able to take um, more presence in their... It, yeah, and the gratitude of having it in your life, period. Exactly. Right? I mean, you could do that with your shoes in the morning and, you know, imagine you didn't have shoes and then you were walking on that really gravelly, rocky sidewalk, you know, to your to your coffee shop. So it's this, it's this practice of losing something that you already have because, you know, if you lose a partner, if you lose a child or something along those lines, it's like, if only I had more time, if only I could have done this, if only I could have told them I love them one last time. So this practice of constantly losing it and coming back to it, you can be much more present with them. Yeah. I don't even think that's weird. I love that practice now that I think about it. And I I haven't practiced it that way. I'm just more grateful for what is. Um, But taking an extra step can go really far for people, especially understanding if it's deleted from their life. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Like, um, say for example, like, what is it like to lose a parent that you're not talking to anymore? Will you feel it? How, will you feel anything about it? Or well, all of a sudden you visualize that loss and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I probably should have said these things to my dad or my mom or you know, family member or friend. Um, as simple as saying like, I appreciate you, I love you. Exactly. You know? And we don't even say things like that. I think it's an incredible practice. Hedonistic adaptation, that's so cool to understand because we see that right? And people just accumulating things that aren't real, mm-hmm. never finding their own true self, never finding their own true happiness, never in alignment with who they are. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what did Jim Carrey say? I wish everyone was like rich or famous. famous. So they know that that's not the answer. And it's true. It's true because it certainly is not. Um, but I want to shift gears because you are, I don't think people know, but you're pretty big in uh, the community for plant-based, yeah. right? And especially with athleticism, just plant-based overall. But when did you when did you start eating more vegetables, first of all? <laughs> um, I, I believe it was almost seven years ago. Um, 
uh, it was that year in between Finland and France. And so I was reading a lot of mindset books, uh, just trying to be a stronger version of myself, especially mentally. And I went to a bookstore uh, before my trip to France and I just grabbed a bunch of books in the sports section. And I saw this book and everyone always laughs when I explain it, but I saw this guy like running and he was like ripped and I was like, yeah, I'm going to grab that book. Yeah. And they're like, wait, you judged the book of a guy. Cover cover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was uh, Rich Rolls Finding Ultra. And uh, so on the plane, I went through a couple of books. And at the time, I still wasn't really a big reader. Five books from each, five pages from each book. And then, okay, now next book, next book. And I got the Rich Rolls book, and I just find so, found so many similarities between us. Um, we both grew up in a place where our sport, our passion wasn't a big deal, but we kept on pushing. Uh, in college, we both kind of dealt with our addictive uh, personalities and maybe not the best way. And for him, eventually, he got to the point where uh, he was done with swimming, but he was still very successful. Smart guy, entertainment lawyer at 39. And he was going up the stairs and uh, just had some chest pain. He's like kind of on the verge of a heart attack. And his grandfather, who was healthy, had died around the same age. So he knew he had to change everything, everything he knew. And so with the help of his wife, which is a very holistic, spiritual lady, started his path from a went to a junk food vegetarian, vegetarian, vegan, plant-based, and started journaling, and along with that, started exercising. And then, you know, long story short, came this amazing triathlete. And now talks about, you know, has his own podcast about health, wellness, spirituality. But um, I read this, and I was just like, there could be a better way. Yeah. And I was like, maybe there is a better way. Because I go to Chipotle, I go to Subway, double meat, you know? Yeah. I want meat. Because the more meat I have, the more protein I can get. The more protein, the stronger I am, the better athlete I am. Mm -hmm. And I was still kind of this like alpha egotistical guy mm -hmm. at that time. And uh, but I was curious, you know, if if there's the truth, I, I want that truth, and I want to take it and use it to be a better version of myself. So I read that book on the plane, and I was just like, first off, I was like, I can't believe I read that book, a full book on the plane, right? And then I was like, man, what am I gonna do? Yeah. Like knowing this, like in this guy's path, like. He was 39. I'm 25 reading this. I was like, he did all those things. What can I do when I'm 25? For sure, no volleyball player is vegan. And I was like, man, I'm going to France. I don't think France is very vegan friendly, but I was just like, shoot, I'm going to do it. Two months, I'll do it. And I started reading as many books as I can. I read Thrive by Brendan Fraser, Scott Jurek's book. And then eventually I came across China Study, which was a very difficult read. But once I read that, I was like, oh man, it's clear. Because mm. my family has bad history of cholesterol and heart disease. I was like, man, it's clear. Yeah. How could it be like any more clear? And so that was my beginning. And at first, I kind of struggled. I didn't know what I was doing. I ate tons of protein. I'd have not just one can of protein, but like the double size of like beans. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I was just like crushing myself. And eventually, I started using like the small cans of beans. I started to feel great. And I was like, what else can I like experiment with? I started to go raw throughout the day, doing smoothies, packing smoothies with me. And just constantly learning, learning about juicing, about gut health now. And it's just an amazing journey because the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. And it makes it even more fun because I can constantly be even better with my decisions, stuff like that. Yeah. And so. Well, how did it change you when you started, at, uh, physically at least? Physically, I was really worried because, you know, my identity was like, at the same time, this athlete, this yeah. strong athlete. And I was like really worried. I was like, Okay, I'm probably gonna feel better. You know, maybe my heart health is gonna be better, but like, I'm gonna lose my gains in the weight room. And that, I got stronger. I was like, what's going on? Like, this is great. 
And at the time, I was living with two Americans. One guy played football in college. The other guy was just huge. They're both 6'4". And I was able to keep up with them. I was like, this is amazing. Like, what's going on? But at the same time, I was like, I had no idea it was what I was doing with, like, food. And, but that actually turned into a, a great thing because I started learning more about food, learning about lentils, quinoa, how to cook them mm. instead of just, you know, chicken, rice, and right, cheese. Right, right, exactly. So, um, so you, were, you got stronger. Did you have any pains or moans or groans that were getting better for you? Because I know you're always moving around on the bottom. Well, the big thing was my acne. I always had terrible acne. Oh. I had to do Accutane. Uh, and I was like, all right, 18 is going to get better. 20 is going to get better. 22 is going to get better. I'm yeah. like 25, my acne got better. <laughs> I'm like, man, what is going on? Yeah. This is awful. Yeah. Uh, I gave up dairy and meat, and like within like two weeks, my, wow. my acne was gone. Yeah. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, what so else? Crazy. But that year, I can't remember like really fighting any, any inflammation, and I was like crushing my body in the weight room. And uh, the hardest thing about it was like the biggest vegan stereotype it's like, you want to tell everyone about it. And so I went back to the USA gym. People knew I was vegan, teasing me. But I was like, guys, you got to feel so much better. No inflammation. I'm stronger. Yeah. Everyone's like, don't tell me what to do, yeah. you know? So it took me a while, but I realized that the best thing, you know, is to not tell people how great something is because it's just going to be blocked off by the ego. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I can tell you, hey, you have to breathe this air. It's so amazing. You're like, I'm not going to breathe. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let me hold my breath instead. And so it's been a cruel journey, not only for myself learning, but uh, sharing and empowering, I think, my friends and family. Because uh, one of my best friends on the team and one of the best players, he always has inflammation, joint problems, because he's 6'9", he jumps 40 inches, and so he's just constantly crushing his body. I have to crush ibuprofen. And I always tell him, like, gotta go vegan, it's gonna help with everything. He's like, no, 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 no. We live together. All right, man, I'm gonna cook, because I don't want meat in my house. He's like, all right kind of lazy like you cook yeah start cooking for him he starts feeling better we start juicing he doesn't have to take ibuprofen yeah so he starts feeling it he goes overseas to his italian team he's like yeah the whole year i didn't cook any meat any fish wow you know once in a while when he goes out with his team he'll have fish or meat but like right. my house was entirely plant-based and i feel great wow and he's the one guy who's maybe the second oldest on the team and i don't think he's ever been injured and wow. so little things like this has been really cool my dad's plant-based now because he has this heart problem in his yeah. family. Cholesterol is amazing. Healthy, dropped 30 pounds. So cool. And so just to see everyone like thriving and vibing with me has been the coolest thing. Yeah, you can. And, and I, I'm such a proponent of that. I wish there was better resources in the community to hold people's hands at the beginning and show them that like, here's how you transition in a healthy way, right? Because a lot of people transition day to night, right? They'll be eating two meals, three meals of you know heavy meat and mm -hmm. cheese, and then they'll go, oh, well, now I'm just going to eat raw vegetables. And it doesn't work for them. It won't work for a lot of people. So um, I wish there was better resources. Did you find any good resources to help you transition well, or was it just you being your research self and jumping in there? Yeah, I think that just the books, um, Thrive by Brendan Brazier, Ritual Funny Ultra, because they... They kind of have like um, examples of what they ate, but I think just like packed, dense green smoothies in the morning and then at night just doing a, a colorful bowl, some type of grain, beans, lots of vegetables, um, make your own sauces, yeah. uh, avocado, guac, yeah. salsa, hummus. Like, it could be delicious too. You can vary it so much. And that's the big thing. Like for me and also people that go plant-based, it's like 
there's so much more food I can eat now. Yeah. Because before it was like, all right, huge portion of meat, some type of vegetable, and maybe, I don't like know. A, like a potato. Exactly. And it's like so boring. But when you go vegan, you have to be a little more creative. And you can go in Indian uh, cuisine, African, yeah. maybe Spanish. Ethiopian. Yeah. And it's like so much more. Like you get to learn about so much more food and it's so much more fascinating for me. Yeah. And at this point, there's most cultures that will even acclimate to that. You know, there's not, there's a lot of cultures that are meat heavy for mm -hmm. sure. But a lot of their dishes, like I love Greek food. I don't need to be eating lamb, you know, but I can go to a Greek restaurant and have exactly what I want. Mm -hmm. Grape leaves, different salad, hummus, whatever it is. Um, so really cool. Uh, How Not to Die Cookbook is another really good one yeah, that people book. will have. And, and it's not like if you have the staple of eating the rainbow, you're already 10 steps ahead of, you know, someone who just starts turning vegan and starts eating vegan junk food Absolutely. for three months, five months, a year. Um, and then understanding that, you know, it, you don't have to be all raw. You know, there's a lot of people who need to transition to cook their food first because their digestive system won't even be really ready for it mm -hmm. after eating the way they did. So I always tell people, let's do a slow transition, but they do really well, you know, and especially in the context of heart disease and diabetes, uh, cholesterol. I mean, those numbers will dip down. The majority of people who just start a plant-based diet, and if you're listening, your, your dad or mom or loved one has high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, just see what an experimental intervention of three to six months will do. Yeah. You know, because I've seen it so many patients. I'm like, well, shit, your cholesterol dipped like way lower than it was. You had high cholesterol. You don't anymore. Oh, you were pre-diabetic. You're not really diabetic anymore. <laughs> your blood pressure was really high. Let's, let's take it three times a day for the whatever. Uh, four, four weeks later, it's normalized. It, the power of food can't be understated. You know it as an athlete. Um, yeah, do you, and do you have anything to say about anything that you want with plant food? Because I know you're such a huge proponent. You're active in the community. I mean, we just have so many hints from like the ancient like uh, legends, you know, like let food be like medicine. Yeah. And we just go so far away from it because, um, you know, we're creatures of least resistance. Yeah. We want things that will make us feel great. We want to avoid things that don't make us feel great. And we want to do it or feel these pleasures with the least amount of energy. And where does that take us with food? That takes us to fast food. Yeah. And usually what I talk about is one of the best like uh, benefits of going plant-based is that you can't eat fast food. But now it's changing. <laughs> well, now it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have all these different really unhealthy plant-based or vegan um, foods, not even plant-based, but they're vegan, just processed foods. And I, I'm not a fan, but... Um, yeah, you can't. You can't really go to fast food for the most part, <laughs> yeah. though. You're kind of forced to cook some really good whole food in your house. You're forced to empower yourself. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so cool. Because, like I said, I learned about lentils. I learned about quinoa. I know how to make my own curry. Yeah. And when you cook it yourself, you control it. I'm going to put oil in it. Am I going to cook it with water? Yeah. Am I going to fry something? Yeah. No. And how much salt am I going to put on it? Yeah. And, like, you're controlling it. Now you're an alchemist. You know, you're combining these foods, you're putting into your body, nutrition is information, food is information. And now you are becoming an alchemist. You're empowering yourself to live a better version of your life, to make sure you get good sleep, to wake up with better energy so you don't have to rely on coffee. That was something I was so reliant on. Living in Finland, there's no sun. What do you do? You drink coffee, drink three cups, four cups a day. And eventually, as you get older, you realize this is not serving my highest self. Like, this is crushing me. Yeah. So little things like this, but... I mean, it's so cool. You empower yourself to like concoct things 
put it in your body. Now your body reacts a certain way to it. Yeah. That's, well, you sound more empowered than most chefs out there. So, and, and, and look, you're even uh, really empowering me to take more time with my food. That's my biggest issue is finding time to make a whole meal, right? I, for me, it's, okay, I have 15 minutes to cook something from scratch yeah. and eat it mindfully and yeah. run out the door. <laughs> 15 minutes isn't enough. Um, so yeah, but the art of cooking and making sure that what you're putting in is something that resonates with you. I mean, there's energy just by the practice of cooking, right? The intention is already there. I am, I am making nutritious food. And you make, you put that love, you into put the that food love too. into the food, man. I had a girlfriend once. She made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and it was the most delicious peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> I made the same one the next day. It tasted nothing like it, right? That's she, why mom's food tastes so good because that food. unconditional love that they're putting in. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, where, where will you be talking at any events? Um, plan any plans in the future? Um, where do people follow you? Where do they find you? You know, I know people are going to be big fans of you already. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I'll be at Eat Drink Vegan, and uh, speaking. I don't know. I'm trying to get. I, I want to speak more because I mean, I remember a long time ago. I I wrote Rich, and I was like, man, you're such an inspiration. Thank you so much. I kind of told him a story. He's like, I would love to have you on the podcast, and I was like. No, 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 no. You gotta like, go, man. That's a big one. Yeah, but I was just like so insecure. But now I think I've really been working on my craft, like mindfulness, meditation, plant-based. You and got so a message to share. I think more, now more than ever. So I'm looking to speak more. I've been speaking a lot with uh, younger athletes because I think, especially of stoicism, there's a lot we can learn from it, things that we can control, but we ultimately don't have control over and how to balance that with the things that we have complete control with yeah. and being a great teammate, dealing with anxiety, stuff like that. Really cool. So uh, I think I'll be at Eat Drink Vegan too. So We're going together. We're going together. All right. <laughs> so if you want to catch us there, you can catch us there. Um, okay, yeah. Anything else? What, so what book today, if one book, yeah. readers or listeners need to purchase, which one are you going to say, this will kickstart you? Yeah, A Guide to the Good Life, William B. Irvine. Okay. Um, I, there's just so much we can learn from the Stoics because they pretty much devoted their life into creating the best personal philosophy for them to live and for their tranquility to not be disrupted. And people, when they think of Stoic, like little s, it's like, okay, pretty much void of emotion. Yeah. But Stoic, big S, it's like void of negative emotion. Uh, they still take pleasure in the good things in life but they also know that everything is fleeting and impermanent. Mm -hmm. and so they take pleasure of it, but they're not attached to it. There's not this deep attachment that I need this to be happy, the external. Yeah. And then for them too, like I said, like they set their goals internally. So they have control over their goals and if they accomplish it rather than external and have other people um, kind of controlling their fate. And so I think stoicism, we have so much to learn because these people devoted their life to living the best life possible and learning from their elders and so on, passed down. So it's an art that's kind of been lost, a philosophy that's been lost, but it's kind of being brought back now. And for me, it's really interesting to learn because from one book, I can learn about someone's entire life devoted to living their best version. You heard it here first. The Guide to the Good Life, William B. Irvine. Yep. Uh, purchase that and let me know if you did and if you loved it, and then we'll relay that to, to the big guy here. All right, Dustin, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Uh, your wisdom is infinite. Uh, and uh, thank you for reminding all of us how to better ourselves 
physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You're a gem, my brother. Ooh, I knew that Dustin would be on fire and I'm so happy that he was able to come. Thank you, Dustin. Um, I really hope that you all took some information, some reading recommendations, some new perspectives, things that you can do to better your life. Like I said, this show is not just about physical, medical. It's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's creative growth, it's business growth, financial growth, everything this show is offering for you to be the highest version of yourself. And Dustin really dropped some bombs. So thank you. Thank you all for listening. As I always say, support the show, rate, review, subscribe, show us the love. And um, yeah, th this is this is all from the heart. And I really hope that you're all benefiting from this. So much love and I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.